tickets. Uh, gold's up about $6 now, trading at $1,914 an ounce. And also Brent crude oil slightly lower at $42.97 a barrel. That's it from me this morning. Do please stay tuned for back chat uh, with Hugh Chiverton. And the weather forecast for today going to be fine and dry. Maximum temperatures about 29 degrees. The outlook's mainly fine and dry tomorrow. Slightly cooler in the morning and at night. The temperature right now, 22 degrees, 70% re- relative humidity. There is a red fire danger warning in force. 8.30 and a half. Samantha Butler has the half hour news. Cathay Dragon will cease operations from today, meaning around 5,300 Hong Kong-based employees will be laid off, as well as a further 600 staff outside of Hong Kong. In a statement this morning, parent company Cathay Pacific said it would seek regulatory approval to take up the majority of Cathay Dragon's routes on its airline, as well as its low-cost carrier Hong Kong Express. The staff cuts amount to almost a quarter of Cathay's headcount. Its restructuring plan includes asking Cathay Pacific cabin and cockpit crew to agree to new conditions of service. The airline said the restructuring would cost around $2.2 billion but should save around $500 million a month. The airline industry has taken a huge hit due to the coronavirus pandemic. Brazil says a Chinese-made coronavirus vaccine will be part of its national immunization plan in one of the first such efforts in the world to fight the pandemic. The country has recorded more than 5 million cases of the virus and 150,000 deaths. Here's the BBC's Katie Watson. According to Sao Paulo's state, the federal government has agreed to buy 46 million doses of the so-called Coronavac, as long as it's approved by the country's health regulator. But when that does happen, it'll be one of two vaccines included in Brazil's immunization program. The other is being developed by AstraZeneca and Oxford University. The vaccine is currently in the final stage of trials, which are being conducted in Sao Paulo. The state governor, Joradoria, said he hopes Brazilians can start receiving it at the start of next year. A new report says the coronavirus pandemic and automation are creating what it calls a double disruption scenario for workers. Here's the BBC's Andrew Walker. The World Economic Forum's report has some striking findings both on how we will work in the future and on how technology will affect the numbers and types of jobs available. It also found evidence that these changes are likely to be more rapid because of the pandemic. Globally, it predicts that machines will displace 85 million jobs by 2025, but more new roles, 97 million, are likely to emerge. But in the present, the report says millions of workers have already experienced profound changes which have hit disadvantaged people with greater ferocity. In two months, the pandemic destroyed more jobs than the financial crisis did in two years. Google has rejected accusations that it's breaking U.S. competition rules after the federal government filed a lawsuit against the company. The Department of Justice says the tech giant has abused its market dominance. But Google described the case as deeply flawed, saying people used its products because they chose to. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chiverton. Your co-host today is Karen Coe. Karen, good morning to you. Hi, good morning, Hugh. Today, cross-straits relations and no vacancy tax. Last week, air traffic controllers, Hong Kong air traffic controllers, told Taiwan there was danger until further notice on a flight path to Taiwanese-controlled islands in the South China Sea. The case that's raised fears Beijing may try and blockade the islets. And in a visit to a military base in Guangdong, Xi Jinping called on troops to put all their minds and energy on preparing for war.
Meanwhile, the White House is moving forward with more sales of sophisticated military equipment to Taiwan, amounting to perhaps five billion US dollars. Is the invasion of Taiwan possible or likely, or is this just more saber-rattling? Is Taiwan drifting away from the mainland politically? What would the US do if there were conflict there? How would people in Hong Kong react? Do you think those US arms sales are provocative? And what actually happened with that conflict in Fiji? Let us know your thoughts, your questions and your comments. Our Facebook page is Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can call us on 233-88266. We'll put you on air. Uh, or you can email backchat at rthk.hk. We'll do our best to read out your messages. Backchat at rthk.hk. Uh, joining us for our first topic, uh, we're joined now by uh, Alexander Huang, Professor in the Graduate Institute of International Affairs and Strategic Studies at Tamkang University in, in Taipei, uh, a former Deputy Minister at the Mainland Affairs Council in Taiwan, uh, Professor Joseph Gregory Mahoney, Professor of Politics and the Director of the International Graduate Programme in Politics at the East China uh, Normal University. And uh, we, hope, we hope to be talking to David Zweig as well later, but we'll, we'll get to that in, in a moment if we can. Um, just before we get to Taiwan, just a couple of quick emails uh, on other topics. Uh, uh, bouquets and brickbats for Backchat. Uh, Michael says, many times pundits on Backchat have commented about the reporting bias in China where the Great Firewall is part of life and where bad news is simply not reported. In fact, one of the fears of many in Hong Kong is that political bias is now a fact of life. In view of all of this, uh, how is it that RTHK News Bulletins, Money Talk and Yu Hu have made no mention of the Biden emails, Ukraine, China and the big man? That's from Michael. And Anthony says, a great discussion about Thailand on yesterday's programme. Uh, I worry that a bloodbath might happen in Thailand. The process of converting a monarchy into a republic can be extremely brutal. Look at France from 1789 until the French First Republic. Look at Germany from German Empire days to the Weimar Republic. It's just history. Thailand's constitutional monarchy isn't a real one like Britain or Japan. My heart goes out to the brave young souls in Thailand. Keep up the good work, guys. That comes from uh, Anthony. Thanks very much indeed for that. Uh, Professor Huang, uh, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for, for joining us. Um, some commentators, as you know, are talking about generally uh, cross-strait relations are at their lowest for some, say, 20 years. H how would you... Uh, and yet, you know, you got sort of soothing sounds from Chai Ing-wen uh, recently. H how would you characterise the state of, uh, of cross-strait relations at the moment today? Stagnation of the cross-strait relationship. We do not have uh, any government-to-government uh, -government or official communication channel ever since uh, President Tsai Ing-wen swearing in uh, in May 2016. So the tension has always been around, uh, up and down, across the Taiwan Strait. However, uh, there are two factors that really bring the cross-strait relations to a more dangerous position. Uh, the first one is that the, the stepping up of the uh, United States and, uh, and uh, PRC military activities uh, in the uh, air and waters uh, near Taiwan, especially uh, in the waterways between Hong Kong, Kaohsiung, and the Philippines. Um, and this is a, 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 an area of tension right now. 
the second problem is that when we have increased military activities, uh, we mostly worry about uh, unintended incidents, in, quote-unquote. Um, the, the, pro- the second problem is that we do not have official or trusted uh, communication channels uh, between Taipei and uh, Beijing. So if there is any um, uh, unwanted uh, incident that taken place uh, out of uh, the increased military activities, um, we, we, are, we have no way to mitigate uh, the, the problem or to de-escalate. Uh, mm, Professor Huang, on your second point, um, the way Beijing is speaking, they're not really talking about unintended incidents. They they seem quite intentional, and you know the words they're using now are probably the closest to talking about intentional military activity than ever before. Yes, this is um, a new term where people call it a gray zone uh, uh, military operations. They're using military pressure uh, to send political message and uh, psychological pressure on Taiwan, uh, but not necessarily leading up to a all-out, full-fledged invasion against Taiwan. Uh, so in this gray area, I agree with you that the tension is getting higher, and the PRC's uh, at least propaganda uh, are stepping up and and, uh, and keep on pressing Taiwan uh, and increase the pressure uh, and and put the situation um, terribly uncomfortable. You said there's a lack of communication channel. Has, that, has something changed then? Was there one in the past? Was did did the Kuomintang facilitate that a bit more or something? Or what's changed in that respect? The communication channel <clears throat> up until 2016 uh, was that uh, Taiwan's Mainland Affairs Council, a different layer of uh, government officials, political appointee and uh, civil servants, can call uh, the, their Mainland uh, counterparts in the Taiwan Affairs Office in, in the State Council anytime and send in text messages anytime and usually get response immediately. But, uh, but Beijing cut off that uh, communication. <clears throat> That's what I meant. Uh, between, especially between, in the second term of President Ma Ying-jeou, uh, leading up to the uh, Ma Ying-jeou-Xi Jinping summit in Singapore in November 2015, all communication channels were open. So. So anyone in the uh, Mainland Affairs Council in Taipei can pick up the phone and talk to someone over there. Of course, most of the conversation was arguing or 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 or, or try to clarify things, not chatting or or, or try to <coughs> make friends. On but at least uh, there were channels. We know which number to call and who will pick up the phone. Right now, we don't have that. That's the problem. You also you mentioned um, U.S. and uh, uh, Chinese uh, military activity in in, in the neighbourhood. Uh, do you think that uh, Donald Trump uh, and the United States at the moment are a destabilizing influence? Um, <clears throat> yes and no, from Taiwan perspective, mm-hmm. uh, because um, the, the China increased their 
naval and air activities, and the United States did more reconnaissance and monitoring activities. And the two giants are showing their muscles or force or doing their study in the waterways or airspace near Taiwan and prepare for the future possibilities. When they are doing those, it's close to or or <clears throat> sliding into our ADIZ, Air Defense Identification Zone. So Taiwan Air Force responded. Taiwan Navy responded. So when, when so the, the thing that I cannot tell you is that whether Beijing's pressure, military pressure in the in the area near Taiwan is targeted as a response to the U.S. increased reconnaissance activities or to keep pressure on Taiwan uh, unilaterally. That's something that I cannot identify. But, but the reality is that the activities are, are in record high, and, and, uh, and uh, it's almost daily that you will see that three parties has some assets moving somewhere near the area. Professor Huang, um, talking more about the U.S., apart from military activities, there's been quite a bit of diplomatic activity because there have been two relatively high-level visits from U.S. Um, State Department officials in the last few months. How, how does Taiwan feel about that? I mean, is it something that's welcome in Taiwan, even though the repercussion is some sort of reaction from the mainland? Well, absolutely, because Taiwan has been isolated for so long. Taiwan, in, in the first term of President Tsai Ing-wen, uh, seven diplomatic allies left Taiwan to recognize Beijing. So Taiwan right now has only 15 diplomatic relations. Um, so when the United States uh, reach out a warming hand, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and intended to assist Taiwan uh, or make Taiwan's voice heard through American efforts. Of course, Taiwan citizens would appreciate the United States' assistance uh, in that account. Uh, knowing, uh, uh, as part of your question, knowing that Beijing would react. Uh, but, uh, but I think if you go to the general public in Taiwan, and say, on one hand, increase U.S.-Taiwan official activities. Uh, the other side is that antagonizing Beijing, so Be Beijing will punish Taiwan by sending more bombers and jets to infringe upon the median line or, or our ADIC. I think most of the people will say, let's improve our relationship with the United States first, because the Chinese pressure has always been there. Um, so, so I think uh, you know, we welcome the uh, the uh, stepping up or, or the warming trends of U.S.-Taiwan official relationship. Mm. All right, uh, Professor Mahoney. Good morning to you. Thank you for for, for joining us again. Uh, what's your answer to that to that question about uh, the general characterization of relations uh, now? Um, you know, we've seen them, uh, we've tracked kind of uh, cross-strait relations going up and down uh, for, for decades, really. There's never been uh, military action since since uh, 1949. Uh, 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 do you think, is this more sabre-rattling? Is this more rhetoric? Or is there something different this time around? I think it's really difficult at this moment to draw a line under, under a single conclusion. Um, I, I would agree with, with some of the points that 
pipe they made, um, but I, I think he's I think he's undersold a couple. Uh, in fact, there were a lot of a lot of connections before the current uh, leader of Taiwan was elected, uh, even beyond what he was describing. I know that there were a lot of secret meetings taking place in Shanghai uh, between Kuomintang and and, uh, and party uh, leaders discussing uh, various ways to deal with problems. So um, I think that there was a lot more of that, and 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 I indeed I agree that when those things uh, stopped in 2016, it, it really um, uh, set the, the, the table for a lot of what has come. However, um, I think you have to understand that, that the way Beijing views Taiwan, and, and, and you hear this term so often in, in PLA uh, speak, uh, that, that Taiwan is the unsinkable aircraft carrier, that it's you know a, a forward staging uh, base for um, um, the U.S. for potentially uh, Japan, uh, for others who are looking to uh, use it as a point of leverage uh, into uh, some sort of attack into China. And uh, when when you when you talk about uh, you know a, a local party in Taiwan uh, pursuing policies that very often explicitly or at least you know sleight of hand are aiming towards some form of independence that are welcoming major advanced weapons sales, um, this, is, this is a red line for Beijing, simply because it cannot afford to have all of that uh, instability flowing into Taiwan. It would be more provocative towards, uh, for, for, for Beijing than, than, say, the Cuban Missile Crisis in, uh, with, with Soviet missiles coming into Cuba in, um, in, uh, the ni- in 1962. So um, on the one hand, I think there is some saber rattling. It, it, it may be responding to... Uh, what you're seeing in terms of the rhetoric that, that Trump is driving with the election, but um, but I think I think Beijing is genuinely concerned that this thing can tip out of hand very quickly, and they're they're preparing for it. If it, it does, is it genuinely concerned, or is that a or, or is that an excuse? Does, uh, I mean, the aren't the arms sales and the capability of Taiwan is primarily defensive. Surely, um, to see it as a possible staging ground or you know base for offensive attacks is—I don't know—it seems a bit of a long shot. Well, I think I think there there are two things, right? The first is if there is some sort of uh, conflict, then uh, you know, does the United States uh, follow its treaty and rush into Taiwan and bring that offensive capability? Uh, the U.S. is already, uh, um, you know, there, there's a lot of what's happening already, as the, as the first speaker noted. And there's a lot that we can't see. There's a lot happening uh, from some reports in, in submarine actions underwater, uh, particularly uh, with U.S. subs. So um, I do think that Beijing sees this as a, as a sincere threat to uh, sovereignty. And when you couple this with, uh, with the other pressures that, that China's facing on its Indian border, uh, in Xinjiang, um, um, the, the, the situation that's still unresolved with South Korea with the missiles, um, I think it sees itself as facing sort of a, uh, once again, um, sort of an encirclement effort uh, by the U.S., and it's, it's pushing back. Um, when, when it comes to Taiwan, you've also got, um, you, 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 I mean, 
don't you have us kind of drifting away, a political drifting away, especially among young people uh, from the mainland? Surely that must be a, a, a key factor for uh, Beijing, never mind the, the offensive you know, uh, capability. The fact that uh, many people in Taiwan uh, simply don't identify as Chinese, um, that must have an impact. That must be um, shocking to, to Beijing. I think it is, uh, but but I think it's something that, uh, candidly, I think Beijing is is also unnerved with you know what, what in, in China we call the the Zhou Lingho and the Ling Lingho, the the '90s and 2000s generation in in China who grew up in a very you know they grew up in a highly uh, commercial oriented market society. They think very differently than the older generations. But you know we also have this this incredible generation gap. Uh, in the United States with the younger generation. So um, I, I'm sure that Beijing is feeling that sensitivity in terms of, of its, own, uh, its, its own young people, uh, as well as uh, what we're seeing in Hong Kong. Uh, we're seeing a generation, a, a, large thing, a large part of what's driving some of the conflict in Hong Kong is generational. Uh, we see it in, in Taiwan. And likewise, we see it uh, to a certain extent in the U.S. So, you know, who knows what's going to happen <laughs> 20 or, or 30 years or even 10 years down the line, but, but all these things are, are contributing factors. Professor Mahoney, just going back to the U.S.-Taiwan security relationship and the treaty, the, it's been deliberately ambiguous for 40 years about you know, what that treaty is, and it's one of those treaties that hopefully everyone has thought hopefully is never put to the test. But just this summer, um, the new representative of the de facto Taiwan uh, embassy, I guess you call it, the Taipei Economic and Cultural Rep Office in Washington, actually said Taiwan needs some degree of clarity. Um, they they want to know, you know, will the U.S. come to their aid militarily if there is some kind of need, if there's some kind of invasion? Do you think the U.S. is ready, willing to to give that clarity? You know, I, I hope not, um, because I think that it, it wouldn't really serve the situation very well. I think the ambiguity has, has uh, you know, helped maintain the status quo, which, is, which has been, in certain respects, beneficial to, to Taiwan and the United States and, and China as well. Um, officially, at this moment, the U.S. Still embraces. If you go to the, the State Department website, they still embrace the one-child policy. Excuse me, the, the one-China policy. But you do get this sense that, there, that incrementally this position is eroding uh, with Mike Pompeo and Trump in charge. Um, and when you and when you watch what what Trump did with Jerusalem um, and how he radically altered longstanding policy, um, it's very unnerving to think that this is that this is tipping towards. Not only more clarity on the on the treaty, but maybe uh, abandoning above all this, the, the the one China policy. Um, the other thing to, to mention is that you know previously you had U.S. administrations that were were disciplining Taiwan, right? And, and any when, when Taiwan would push ahead with things that might irritate uh, the U.S., would sort of ambiguously say, "Okay, we have your back, but don't go too far." And that hasn't been happening with, with Trump, and I think that's another major uh, concern. And in fact, I, I, am, I'm, I, don't, I can't really read what's happening in Taipei, but my sense is 
Taipei may, may be caught up in, in, in a dynamic that they might not be able to slow down. In the past, they could count on the U.S. to discipline them, and so they could they could bluster and push themselves. But now they may be they may be caught up in a ride that that, that they ultimately will pay the highest price for. It. Professor Huang, do you do you agree with that? Do you want to hitch your wagon to yeah, just, Donald Trump? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I generally agree with uh, Professor uh, Mahoney's uh, assessment. I, I think, uh, you know, in the 90s, uh, um, the United States has been uh, an arbiter and uh, trying to manage uh, the, uh, the relationship uh, between uh, Beijing and Taipei. And right now, <clears throat> with Donald Trump itself, Washington is now uh, a player, a key player, as a counterpart uh, in the wider strategic competition around the world. So Taiwan is caught up. Usually Taiwan was told by Washington to slow down or, or doing activities within the perimeter that Washington would allow. And right now it's unleashed by Washington, not Taiwan, but, but, but Donald Trump administration itself take on China. And, and Taiwan is caught between these two elephants. Uh, and, uh, and so sometimes we can argue that Washington is no longer uh, restricting uh, Taipei uh, from doing one or two. Uh, but I want to submit uh, one observation, that uh, in reality, the second so-called senior level visit to Taiwan, uh, uh, you know, the Undersecretary of State, uh, 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 Kroc's visit, uh, was not using a uni- United States Air Force jets, and um, he did not uh, visit any government office. He did not. He met with uh, Madam President Tsai Ing-wen in her residence rather than the presidential office. I think the United States has already tacitly, prudently, uh, sending signals to Taiwan that there is a one-China policy. Uh, that the United States, that the United States will not back up Taiwan uh, at the expense of uh, U.S.-China uh, overall management of relationship. So, so I think um, maybe I am too sensitive uh, or too too early to detect that. But a personal observation uh, I would share is that the United States had already drawn. Uh, uh, once again, uh, it's line uh, of <clears throat> tolerance to Taipei. Now, now Prof- Professor Huang and Professor Mahoney, of course, we're just a few weeks away from a U.S. election, which could see a brand new administration. What would you expect from a Biden administration that would be different? Uh, who, who uh, goes first? Oh, maybe, maybe Professor Huang. Uh, yeah, I, I think... Um, uh, the, the, there will be a uh, at least six months of policy review uh, on China if Biden wins uh, after his inauguration. So we will have time to uh, observe. Well, I would call uh, that. I would uh, suspect that that a Biden administration will try to resume some activities, including senior level dialogue with China uh, to jointly uh, deal with the issues that need, needed to be dealt with by uh, the two leading economies and the two powers, such as, um, 
know, climate change and others. Um, by doing so, I, I think the United States will become uh, more cautious than the current administration uh, that to advance uh, or overtly advance uh, U.S.-Taiwan connection. So Taiwan needs to be very careful in watching this, uh, even uh, though uh, the I, I guess after four years of um, you know reflection or 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 four years of Trump. I would argue that even with the Biden administration, uh, the the engagement with China would be selective, disciplined, and principled. That's uh, what I see the possible situation. Okay. Maybe, Professor Henry, we could get to your answer after the news at uh, 9 o'clock. Uh, I think you're going to stay around, but we're going to say goodbye uh, for the moment to uh, uh, Alexander Huang, uh, Professor at the Graduate Institute of International Affairs and Strategic Studies at Tamkang University in Taipei, a former Deputy Minister at the uh, Taiwan's Mainland uh, Affairs Council. Uh, uh, we're also going to be talking later in the programme about the uh, government's decision to uh, not implement, to scrap that plan for a vacancy tax, which would have seen uh, developers uh, pay if they uh, built a flat but uh, didn't start renting it out. Uh, as I say, the government has decided uh, not to go ahead with that. Uh, what do you think make of that decision? Uh, we want to hear from you, as ever. You can email back, chat at rthk.hk. Uh, send in your messages. We'll do our best to read them out. And uh, you can just call us uh, and uh, speak for yourself. 233-88266 is the number, as ever, 233-88266. Well, there's always our Facebook page and you can share your thoughts there. That's back chat on rthk radio three uh just a quick look at the weather now before the news at uh, nine o'clock and before we return to the issue of cross straits relations it's going to be fine and dry today uh very dry uh, in fact comparatively with a red fire danger warning in place uh, at the moment temperatures today up to about 29 degrees moderate northerly winds fresh offshore and the outlook is going to be mainly fine and dry tomorrow. Slightly cooler in the morning and at night and then cloudier and windier in the following couple of days. 23 degrees now, humidity 67%. On mobile phones and in web browsers. The search company described the lawsuit as deeply flawed. It said people used Google because they chose to, not because they were forced or couldn't find alternatives. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Wednesday morning with Karen Ko and me, Hugh Chiverton. We're talking about relations between uh, Beijing and Taipei, cross-strait uh, relations, uh, even the possibility of uh, military conflict, uh, war. Uh, we have with us Joseph Gregory Mahoney, Professor of Politics, Director of the International Graduate Programme in Politics at East China Normal University. We're also joined now by uh, David Zweig, who's the Director of Transnational China Consulting Limited and an Emeritus Professor of Politics at the University of Science and Technology. Later we're also going to be talking about the possibility of a, a vacancy tap. We've got an interesting email to get to and some thoughts uh, in, in a moment. But uh, Professor Mahoney, first of all, uh, just before the news, we were asking about what difference uh, a Biden administration uh, would make. H how do you see that? Uh, if, uh, if Biden became the, the president, how would that change relations, do you think? I think, I think it's really uh, an open question. Um, it's First of all, to, to go back to the early conversation about Taipei really, you know, sort of holding their breath to see because policies may shift considerably. I think you also have a lot of people in New Delhi and Tokyo holding their breath as well because policy could pivot in, in, in uh, uh, very dramatic ways. 
however, um, I think we have to remember, and, and I know that, that the foreign policy establishment in Beijing has this in mind, that uh, historically, Democrats were more hostile towards China. You know, the oddity of the Trump administration was uh, his flipping the Republican Party against China. And now, uh, not just in, in, in terms of bipartisan animosity towards China, we have uh, popular uh, opinion in the U.S. Is, is, is very negative towards China's point. Um, so previously, you know, you had the, we talked about the U.S. which disciplined uh, Taiwan. Uh, the Republican Party and, and major business interests would, de- would discipline the Democrats. And we don't have that now. So um, uh, I, I have to, you know, wonder if uh, what sort of political incentives uh, Biden would have to, to warm relations uh, with China in a significant way. Furthermore, uh, if Biden wins, he's likely to face in four years uh, Mike Pence or Mike Pompeo um, uh, uh, in, in the presidential race. And both of them have heavily invested their, their political brand in taking uh, a very hard positions against China. So if he softens his position, he'd be vulnerable four years from now. So I agree that we may see a, a six-month uh, review, but I don't think we would see any major changes uh, even after that. Uh, I think, I think there, you may even see sort of a free riding on this, this new reality that's been carved out by, by Trump. But the other thing that I would be concerned about is that uh, historically we've also seen that Democratic presidents have, have sometimes engaged in symbolic shows of force because sometimes they're perceived as not being uh, as strong or as uh, militarily as, as Republican presidents. And uh, if there's a symbolic show of force in South China Sea, it could spark something uh, uh, much worse. Okay. This is, here's an email uh, from Peter, uh, who says, on the possibility of a mainland Taiwan conflict, many frame mainland China's options against Taiwan as peace or invasion. This is a dangerous oversimplification. It's important to remember that the Chinese civil war actually has never ended. It hit a pause button, but it's unfinished business and just shifted its means over the decade. Also, it's wrong to paint mainland as the aggressor. So far, only Taiwan actually ever attempted to invade the mainland just Google Project National Glory. Taiwan's preparations for the mainland invasion were finally abandoned in 1972. The US has injected itself into this civil war almost from its beginning, playing a decisive role many times over. The US prefers to keep the conflict simmering as Taiwan's reunification is not security interest. It would end the US military dominance in the Asia-Pacific and South China Sea. However, China's 2005 anti-secession law has set a legal framework promoting peaceful unification, making safeguarding China's sovereignty and territorial integrity, the common obligation of all Chinese people. But it's U.S. election time. As a last resort, Trump might start a war to secure a win. Depending how far the U.S. wants to push the limits and Taiwan being its willing tool, the unfinished Chinese civil war will resume, and it's likely that from the moment the shooting starts, it will cease being the unfinished Chinese civil war and become the China-U.S. war. A strong modern Chinese military will prevent the U.S. and Taiwan from becoming too adventurous. Meanwhile, short of a full conflict, China has a lot of less drastic options on its hands. It can embargo all of Taiwan's imports and cannot 
cut all connectivity to the outside world, just what India is doing in Kashmir. It can seize all Taiwan-held offshore islands, including Kinmen, the Pengus and Pratas. Also, in response to US provocations, China, as an UNCLOS member, is legally allowed to deny innocent passage to foreign naval vessels between its mainland and its islands. means under international law, China could demand the US Navy to stop its patrols through the Taiwan Straits. That comes uh, from Peter. Uh, David Zweig, uh, good day to you. Thank you very much indeed for, for, for joining us. Uh, Thanks for the invitation. Uh, yeah. Uh, t- tell us about your view of, of what's going on. Is the, is the, it seems like there is a downward spiral uh, in relations. Uh, the sort of the fracas, it seems possibly even a fist fight in Fiji. Uh, it's the latest kind of a manifestation of, a, uh, of what's going on there. What's driving this? What's making things worse, do you think? the United States and the Trump administration taking a more assertive position in uh, uh, strengthening ties with Taiwan. Um, you know, again, as a Canadian, there's been uh, calls from uh, Pompeo and from the U.S. for Canada to reconsider its position on Taiwan and to take a more uh, positive view on Taiwan. So the Trump administration clearly sees that uh, as one way to poke China, to make uh, life for the Chinese more difficult. Um, you've also got Xi Jinping, who uh, I think uh, has decided uh, in a speech uh, early this year, made it pretty clear that uh, he didn't want to leave the Taiwan problem for future generations. Uh, he wanted to solve it. He was the generation that was going to solve it. And so with Tsai Ing-wen and uh, uh, an independentist, He's become much more intolerant uh, and wants to put more and more pressure on Taiwan to make sure that uh, that uh, Tsai doesn't feel that she can, under the American umbrella, she can move towards greater independence. Is that is that move uh, an irresistible trend of history? Uh, is that towards? They, towards independence in, in Taiwan? Uh, I mean, just in terms of generation, it's, it seems that it's young people who are particularly identifying more as Taiwanese and less as Chinese. Um, uh, sure. Well, that's so been it, a trend. I mean, is that just the way well, it's going? Is that the way it's, it's been going? A since, it's been a trend since Li Dongwei, mm. you know, back in the, the 80s um, uh, and uh, in the 90s. And Li... Uh, raise this concept of Taiwan consciousness, uh, Taiwan Isher, right? That the sense that there was something, of, even though he was a Kuomintang leader, um, he also was hated by China. Uh, I remember being at a dinner where the current foreign minister, Wang Yi, a small group of us were having dinner at Harvard, and, and he, the Wang Yi just went on a tear about Li Danghui, about what a he was. He, his Japanese was better than his Mandarin, and he was a traitor for you know just this terrible traitor. But but he really started the whole movement towards independence, and then we've seen it progress, right? Chen Shui-bian moved towards it, and then Bush tried to stop more of that, and uh, then we had a sort of respite with Ma Ying-jeou. But even Ma Ying-jeou, who wanted to improve relations with the mainland, would not tighten political ties. And when he thought about trying to tighten economic ties, uh, the the parliament 
the young people sat in on the par- in the parliament, the sunflower movement, mm. and they very clearly, as you, as, uh, you know, as you mentioned, the the young people are very much uh, have a wrong, strong sense of, of being Taiwanese, uh, and the surveys have continued to show that, and and even under Tsai Ing-wen, there's been strengthening in education, uh, textbooks, uh, and and there has been an increase in the sense of uh, being Taiwanese. Uh, under her, so, but but I don't, you know, the the strongest thing stopping the the pull for independence are is the military threat, right. and uh, the the mainline knows that, so they keep that threat there. Whether it's thirteen, I don't know how many hundred missiles, thirteen hundred missiles, and now they fly regularly into Taiwanese airspace uh, and uh, make life kind of miserable for for Taiwan. So, so, David Zweig, I mean, if you look at the, hi, Karen. Hi, the, the way um, you know Taiwanese behave, they behave almost like a, as a nation, except they don't, in in actual name, have independence. But where China does get involved is when they, when Taiwan has other bilateral relations. For example, the trade deal they want to do with India, China will step on India to say, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. So, so China's using its other relationships with other countries to continue the pressure on Taiwan, but you know, really, is that well, going to work? They do it in, in international organizations, right? Exactly. WHO, yeah. You know, they they give no international space, as they say, um, for Taiwan. Um, you know, it's in, in that sense, it's pretty much a stalemate. Uh, but the big, if you look in the last couple of years, the big, we've got you've got Tsai Ing-wen. So you've got the DPP back in power, right? And then you've got Donald Trump. Um, I think Biden will not. I think Biden will calm this down somewhat. Um, uh, I don't think he has any incentive to uh, intensify the conflict uh, over Taiwan. Uh, he's, I, I would be very surprised if his advisors would consider sending high-level delegations to Taiwan. Uh, arms sales... Uh, I think people on both sides, Democrats and Republicans, have uh, feel that there's some obligation to do that because of the Taiwan Relations Act. Do you think, right. do you think that will go ahead? Will the, will the arms sales go ahead? And is, is that? I, I would, I would think so. Hmm. I would think so. I mean, I think that there's a sense of deterrence, right? That you want to deter China. You want to make China think about not uh, uh, using force. Right. Uh, I think that the both both parties would want to make sure that China sees the risk of using military force. Uh, that's always a mistake when you don't. You know, we go back to to the Korean War when you don't warn the other side that there's a pretty high price in attacking you to a certain extent, invite attack. So I think that the arms sales will go forward, but I don't think there'll be the high level delegations. Um, I think that uh, that that will not be the a key part of uh, Biden's foreign policy. But they will be tough. You know, they're talking about. I mean, you can read you can read it in Foreign Affairs. Your audience can read it regularly in Foreign Affairs. Ratner and other people who are Trump's uh, Biden's foreign policy specialists. They're talking about uh, competitive, a very competitive relationship. That's the way they see it. They don't see it as as antagonistic as Trump has, but they certainly will see it as a very competitive relationship.
relationship. While you're <clears throat> while you're both here, and maybe to 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 finish off, can I ask about that that um, uh, interesting uh, survey from Pew? Um, I think it was from uh, last week on on uh, Western attitudes. I think including also Japan and Korea, Australia towards towards China, which has shown a sharp deterioration. People having a much more negative view uh, recently uh, of of uh, um, China, uh, which sort of uh, seems to contrast with the with the internal. Uh, view as, as far as we can tell from 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 the mainland uh where people um seem to be uh, happy with the way that you know the covid was dealt with and and so on um that that, that big disparity Professor Mahoney, can I, a couple to you. I mean, some of the things you've talked about, you've talked about encirclement again, and Peter was talking in that email about the, the, the Taiwanese threat to, you know, to invade the mainland uh, and so on. You've talked talking about the offensive possibility of of Taiwan. It, it's again, it's painting China, it's painting the mainland as as a victim, uh, and a lot of people perhaps don't understand why China keeps thinking of itself as a victim when it's the most populous, biggest, powerful, richest place on, on earth. How can they possibly be a victim? Well, what are your thoughts on that? I think you've overstated that, but go yeah. ahead. Yeah, but, yeah, for the sake of argument. Okay, <laughs> Professor Mahoney, first. Well, I think, you know, the first thing is you have to look. Uh, China is, is a very large uh, country. It's a very diverse country geographically. It also has more countries on its border than any other country in the world. It, it has a lot of a lot of uh, difficult relations along its borders. It also has cultures that overlap within its borders, uh, you know, the, uh, minority groups that overlap with other areas. But I think, you know, uh, to, to, to go back just quickly, and I don't know how much time I have here, if you go back to 1999 uh, with the Clinton administration, this was a, a major year of destabilizing uh, U.S.-China relations. That was a year that the, uh, I won't go through all the things they did, but, but that was also the year that the U.S. sold advanced weapons to uh, China, and then that followed up in, Taiwan. in 2001, excuse me, Taiwan, and then that followed up in 2001 with the war on terror, where the U.S. put uh, bases in Central Asia, and this was seen by Beijing as an encirclement uh, strategy, so we're going to use uh, uh, the, the war on terror as, a, as an entry point, uh, surprising through Pakistan, you know, China had always been worried that it was going to come across through Syria. Um, and so then China spends all this time and effort trying to push the U.S. out of Central Asia, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, Belt Road, and all these things. And uh, so they, they break out of that containment strategy as they see it. Um, and now, uh, you know, there has been other containment strategies that have emerged over the last uh, decade. And we're kind of seeing, I think, an end game of that now uh, in the South China Sea. And Taiwan is overlapping that issue uh, and, and becoming part of it. So, again, uh, always a, a victim? Well, she, she I, don't think it's a, all, I don't think it's a victim. I think that there are real strategic vulnerabilities uh, that Beijing faces. And I think, I think the, 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 real, the, the real strange thing here that is too often neglected in the press is that the U.S. always screams anytime it, it you know, the U.S. is always presenting itself as this powerful uh, actor in order to prevent victimization. But China very rarely shows where its real strategic vulnerabilities are. And so there's a lot happening underwater from what we hear that, um, that, that China has not been able to mitigate. Um, and it doesn't talk about this in the Chinese national press because this would anger Chinese nationalists 
in, in, in China itself. But there are actually real strategic vulnerabilities that China faces and that it is struggling at this point to overcome. And this stuff with Taiwan and Hong Kong and, and on the Indian border and Xinjiang, they're all just uh, stressors that are adding to these other things that we can't see. David Zweig, why does but, everyone but hate China? Perception. Sure, but I would say that that's not the perception. You know, again, it's third world versus developed world. You know, Belt and Road's popular in the developed world, in the, in the th third world, but in whether it's Western Europe or the U.S. or Canada, I mean, relations are terrible. Um, uh, you know, this is the 50th anniversary right now is the 50th anniversary of Sino-Canadian diplomatic relations. And there's no party, <laughs> you know? I mean, there's just no party, right? It's at mm. this time that the, the, the Chinese ambassador, um, uh, I think, misspoke um, and, and has been misinterpreted, but, but uh, uh, took a tough position on Canada's decision to did, to did give, he can I can I ask about uh, that did he was he did he actually kind of mean to say that the that those people who were being given refugee status were dangerous criminals and therefore they were a threat to Chinese in Hong Kong is, was that is they that were a threat to Canadians in Hong Kong a threat to Canadians in yeah. Hong Kong that, that's what he yeah. meant but I, it was, I believe I, I sent in if, if I can't get it published in Canada that I'll send it to the South China Morning Post. I think it's very clear that the Canadians have misinterpreted um, uh, uh, Ambassador Chong's statement uh, when he's, because I think what he did say was, you know, unstable political situation mm. in Hong Kong is dangerous for Canadians mm. um, and for Canadian companies. But then when he was asked, are you threatening these people? He said, well, that's your interpretation. He should have just said, no, of course not. I'm just trying to say you guys should support the national security law because that's brought stability and everything would be okay if that went through. Um, so I think that he wasn't threatening. Well, this is, this, is why they don't, this is why they don't score points for PR, isn't it? They don't say right. the right words, so to put it politely. Really stupid comment. Um, the initial comment, I mean, the Canadians are in a really a, a good, uh, in a mood for having a pissing contest. Right, so so when he made that comment, they were in a, they were very quick to misinterpret it, um, and then to make uh, very critical comments. The foreign minister and now the deputy prime minister, um, they've made very uh, strong uh, response to to something that didn't really seem so provocative, mm. you know. Mm. And because uh, I and I, I mean, you know, I'm a Canadian, right? And do I want to feel that I'm living in Hong Kong and and that the Chinese are, are saying, you know? You're at, you're at risk, and how many you know how many Canadians? I mean, we'd all just get our asses out of there as quickly as possible. So I don't think that that's what they meant at all. I think what they were saying is what you said, Hugh, which okay. is they're saying, look, the, the 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 violence you're 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 encouraging violence by giving these people asylum, and therefore you're encouraging instability, which is bad for the three hundred thousand Canadians living in Hong Kong. Okay, quick email from Jay who says, America has to keep selling guns because a lot of their economy runs on it. As far as I'm aware, sharing guns have gone up over the past few months and usually when they have the gun rally, the sh gun rally, the shares go down and then they suddenly boost up all again. All good for business and jobs and population reduction. That comes from Jay. Thank you very much indeed to, I guess, uh, today, to uh, uh, David Zwei, we're hearing there, Director of China, China International China Consulting Limited and a Emeritus Professor at the University of Science and Technology and Professor Joseph Gregory Mahoney, Professor of Politics and Director of the International Graduate Programme in Politics at East China Normal University. Thank you very much indeed for 
for uh, joining us uh, this morning. A couple of emails. Uh, Bernadette says, a suggestion to carry lamb. Please find passengers that arrive with positive results to abuse our medical system or send them back to where they came from. Hong Kong residents and visitors have to be treated the same. And uh, Jay says, uh, touching on our final topic today in the new territories we've seen thousands of properties that have been empty for five years uh, properties standing idle for the past five years manipulating and holding prices these properties aren't for hong kong people they are for china chinese and now xi jinping wants to make shenzhen into a super area it all begins to make sense and do we not notice in this predicament covid we still have many construction companies still working has the government clawed back any subsidies and handouts on those uh, that comes uh, from Jay. We wanted to talk about the uh, government decision to uh, abandon uh, its uh, proposed uh, vacant property tax. Edward Yum joins us, political commentator, managing director of IASA Globo, a, a subsidiary of the main board listed company. Uh, Mr Yum, good morning to you. Thanks for, for joining us. Good morning, uh, well, What do you make of this uh, decision, this uh, shift of uh, uh, policy on the, on the property tax? Well, actually, I think... Um I think the government has missed the best timing of doing so because um, right now uh, we are not seeing the hottest real estate market in, in this year. Um, as we all know, this uh, the vacancy tax is supposed to prevent the developers from holding up the supply and to stabilize the real estate prices. But right now we see um, the prices uh, the prices of uh, Hong Kong real estate, the Hong Kong uh, the Hong Kong properties are actually flat. Uh, or uh, going flat or even have some corrections. So um, whether even if we impose the vacancy tax right now at this point, whether it's effective or what, we don't know. But, well, this shows that because this vacancy tax actually was originally proposed by the government in 2018, which is like two years ago, more than two years ago. So, um, uh, and then uh, once again, this shows the inefficiency of the government and we had been having, um, well, a very lengthy debate, uh, whether in the electrical or even uh, within the public. Um, and the government just didn't push it hard. So, uh, and right now, even they do, I, I think it, it is less meaningful. Yeah. Ed, mm-hmm. um, Edward, do you think, mm-hmm. I mean, the reason given, well, it wasn't much of a reason. They just said they decided mm-hmm. not to go ahead, taking into account the latest economic situation mixed views of legislators and within the community. What's your view of, of the reasoning for not going ahead? Well, uh, I think, well, again, my, my view is that well, it, it's meaningless right now, whether it's go ahead or not. Um, and for the electrical to actually give it up, I, I, I think, well, to me, it doesn't really relate to the economic situation right now. Because um, even with the tax or going ahead or not, um, it doesn't have the regulations to uh, the housing prices right now. As, as you can see, um, we we uh, we have a quite a, a free economy right now in Hong Kong, uh, and the property prices are determined by the supply and demand. Um, and despite whether we, we have the tax or not, still you know we we see the prices going up and also some correction during the economy downturn. So um, and and for the electrical members, I, I think well of course they they provided the reason of uh, saying okay we we have too much on the agenda mm. um, and too many new laws to pass and right now we know this uh, electrical which is a well I would say a abnormal status right now 
uh, we extended the election to next year. Um, and if they are trying to pass some laws that are controversial right now during this year, I think it will create even more debate or argument so, or disputes. I mean, so mm-hmm. the, the bill may come mm-hmm. back in, in future LegCo sittings, but if you look at uh, other places where they've introduced mm-hmm. this kind of vacancy tax, say right. Australia, Canada, the UK, uh-huh. uh, the the actual effect... Um, didn't help vacancy rates. In fact, what happened was rents rose. So, I mean, what's your view of the the actual vacancy tax? Is it a well, good idea? Yeah, that, that's a very good question because uh, actually this vacancy tax, uh, I, I say it's, it's one of the two uh, ever debating issues or, or questions uh, in economy. Uh, vacancy tax and the, uh, uh, the minimum wage. Minimum wage is another uh, very controversial uh, topic, uh, which we don't have a solid answer. Yes, I agree that you know in some foreign countries we see, um, well, even with the vacancy tax, it doesn't really help uh, to control or to uh, to cap the uh, or to stabilize the real estate prices, and vice versa. There's some negative impact, but well, there's still some difference between the vacancy tax here in Hong Kong and the proposed one and versus the, say, um, the one in Canada, because the one in Canada, um, they, they actually impose something on the property owner, so not only the developers. But right now in Hong Kong, uh, the, the vacancy tax that the government proposed two years ago, actually, it, it actually prevent, again, like I said, prevent the developers to hold the supply um, and not to sell some new flats to the public. And by statistics, um, we have about 1,000 new units that are unsold every year. So cumulatively, we do have about uh, over 10,000 units, new units, brand new units we talked about. Brand new units hold up by the developers in Hong Kong, and they are not up for sale in the market. So we are now targeting all the vacancy tax in Hong Kong is actually targeting this sector. So they try to, um, well, push or they try to encourage the, um, or they try to urge the developers to actually sell off basically everything, all the stocks that they have on hand. But of course, right now, if the tax is not going ahead, then, you know, again, this over 10,000 new units are, are being hold, I think, still. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, there many thanks for joining us. Well, one more comment from this is from, uh, Paisley, who says, scrapping the vacancy tax makes sense as it will reduce the pressure on developers to offload apartments during the current recession, thereby cushioning the downside to residential prices. That's uh, Paisley's take. It all depends on whether you're an owner or not. (laughs) Yes, if you want to cushion the the, the downside. Uh, Edward Young, thank you very much indeed for joining us, political commentator, managing director of IESA Globo. Karen, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Thank you. A couple more emails there. S um, says, please inform your correspondent, Peter. I'm not sure who that is uh, loudly and clearly that Kashmir has always been part of India there is no comparison with China stroke Taiwan uh, I'm not sure if that was who that was referring to uh, okay and uh, a plea from Leslie Ann 
Um, he says, Dear Backchat, can someone please offer some explanation as to why the beaches are still closed? The weather is fabulous, and here we st- have, still have both the beaches and barbecue sites closed. It makes absolutely no sense at all. Furthermore, uh, whoever heard of having a wedding with 50 people and no food or drinks? How absolutely ridiculous. We currently have 161 local infections in 8 million people. So I think the current measures do not warrant the facts. That comes uh, from uh, Leslie Ann and uh, Bowen, who's uh, revealed himself as a Glenn Gould fan yesterday, says, uh, listening to Radio 4, as suggested, is a great way to enjoy classical music. But different genres of classical music sometimes create very different moods. The music, for example, the symphonies of many 20th century composers tend to make one feel bewildered, confused, agitated or even frightened. Other genres like operas are not accessible unless one happens to be a linguist. In terms of keeping stress and anxiety at bay, there is nothing like listening in one sitting to several CDs of virtuosos of the type and calibre I mentioned yesterday. The least expensive alternative arrangement I can think of in this regard is to select a number of internet classical music radio stations such as Classic FM, Radio Swiss Classic, SWR2, Venice Classical Radio and so on, and switch between them to find the right music that is being played at any particular time. Advice there from uh, Bowen. Bowen, thank you very much indeed. Karen, thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. Uh, Danny will be uh, in the uh, chair tomorrow and on uh, Friday. Leaving you now with the weather, fine and dry today. Temperatures up to about 29 degrees, 23 degrees at the moment. Relative humidity is at 68%. To prevent the spread of COVID-19, try flexible working hours and staggered meal breaks. Wear a mask on public transport. Avoid crowded lifts. Try not to hold large meetings and reduce face-to-face contact with colleagues. Avoid meal gatherings. Stay away from crowds after work. Wash hands frequently and keep the workplace clean. If you feel unwell, stay away from work and see your doctor. Visit coronavirus.gov.hk for details. I'm 33, the news with Samantha Butler. Cathay Pacific has announced its regional subsidiary Cathay Dragon will cease operations from today and a quarter of the group's workforce will be laid off as it struggles to survive the coronavirus pandemic. The cuts include around 5,300 Hong Kong-based employees as well as 600 outside Hong Kong. The Honorary Advisor to the Travel Industry Council has welcomed the easing of social distancing measures for the trade. From Friday, although a ban on public gatherings of more than four people remains in place, local tours of up to 30 people will will be allowed. Michael Wu says it's good news as local guides have had no work for around eight months but can now lead local tours on the weekends. And offensive graffiti targeting former Judge Stanley Ho has been spray-painted on walls in Kowloon Tong overnight. When Mr Ho was a magistrate, pro-Beijing group accused him of bias towards anti-government protesters. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Designer Great Interpreter of Beethoven. As well. Oh so shy, quiet and retiring doggy council co-founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is really for adults, it's not really for cats. Good morning. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Hello. Decipher what's happening behind the myth. Good morning. In-depth interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this 